Hello, hello. I am Drake, and I am your host of Brain Buzz Podcast. We are a podcast that makes science accessible and enjoyable for once. And today we're talking about mental health stigma. If you or someone you know has ever experienced uh, mental health disorder uh, or any issues with mental health, you probably have experienced stigma in some form. Now, what types of stigma there are and what stigma kind of looks like can vary drastically. And today we had Dr. Petra Gronholm from King's College London on to talk about her work on exactly that, mental health stigma. And she also does some really cool work within COVID stigma and how people have been stigmatized during COVID, the COVID uh, pandemic. So if you're interested in what stigma looks like, how our language shapes and, uh, and impacts the perception of mental health, um, and also tips on how to reduce stigma related to COVID or mental health and what you should be doing when you're, you're interacting with somebody that you know has a mental health um, illness or disorder. We have it all on this episode. So please do stay tuned. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to say thank you for listening first off. Second of all, please do go to Apple Podcast if you haven't already and give us a review on there. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at BrainBuzzPod. We're always posting content and retweeting and sharing cool science that's coming out. So if you're interested in anything psychology related, science related, uh, or interested in what's going on with me, please do follow us on Brain Buzz because that's where you're going to get the content. Um, Otherwise, thanks so much. And I hope that you're doing well and staying healthy during these crazy times. Cheers. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I am your host, Drake. And today we have an amazing guest, Petra, Dr. Petra Grenholm. She is a research fellow at the Health Service and Population Research Department at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London. She is a researcher that focuses on how to reduce mental health stigma and discrimination. And she is coming on to talk to us exactly about that, about how to reduce stigma and her work on you know recent COVID work, as well as low-income and middle-income uh, countries and how they have unique differences within the stigma and discrimination. Thanks for coming on, Petra. Great. Thanks very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to have you. We've had a lot of people really interested, a lot of viewers asking us to cover more on mental health access, barriers to mental health access, and, and stigma in general. So you are the perfect guest for us to have on to talk about this. Um, so, so Petra, I have very softball questions just to start on what stigma is. Um, they might be very simple for you, but it's great for us to kind of figure out really what gen- what actually stigma genuinely is, right? So, mm. so what what is stigma, and what kind of forms does stigma take when it comes to mental health specifically? Sure. So, I, I really appreciate that you start with the basics um, because um, actually, it's not sort of as simple as it seems. So, I think. I'd like to think maybe I'm, I'm living in my own research bubble, but I think most people have a sense of what they mean when they talk about stigma or sort of what we mean when we talk about stigma. But it's actually a, a really complex construct. And it's particularly com- complex when it comes to researching on it, because obviously we, when we research something, we want to have something that we can actually measure and assess and see whether it's present somewhere, if it's reducing based on the interventions we might apply, etc. So it's important to be really specific about what we talk about. Mm -hmm. So sort of if we go really, really far back, 
Uh, stigma is one of those terms that has very ancient origins. So originally, um, it was an ancient Greek word that meant puncture or brand. And it's actually referring to a sort of real physical process where a person who was somehow considered lesser than and that someone wanted to mark out um, actually got physically branded with a wooden stick so that would be for instance thieves or murderers would get this physical mark to set them aside from the rest of society as, as you know to identify them as someone we wanted to avoid mm-hmm. so that's sort of where the word originally comes from but the way we talk about stigma in psychological and sociological literature that sort of this there's many definitions but a key one was provided by a canadian actually sociologist called irving goffman who spoke about stigma as the situation of a person who's disqualified from social acceptance as a result of possessing a deeply discredited attribute that somehow sets them apart from others and reduces them from a whole and usual person to a tainted and discounted one. So that's a sort of like key phrase you'll often see in any literature about stigma. And, and that type of definition applies to, to anything that's stigmatized. Um, unfortunately, we, we know that there are many things that are stigmatized. So, you know, my work focuses on mental health, but we can unfortunately also see stigma in relation to gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation or other health conditions or religious beliefs or political affiliations or, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. So this definition sort of catches all of those. Right. Yeah, um, so stigma is kind of like a... It's kind of like a the umbrella term for all discrimination, like prejudice, all of that is kind of encompassed under stigma, right? Exactly, sort of. So then we can kind of take it a little bit more specific and, and think about sort of health-related stigma. Mm-hmm. So there's a definition provided for that that talks about stigma in that context being a personal experience or a social process that is characterized by exclusion and rejection and blame and devaluation. Uh, that's a result of anticipating or experiencing um, negative social judgments due to a person or a group of people being associated with a given health condition. So that's sort of narrowing it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and sort of now we come on to, to kind of like the things that you were mentioning, which often are associated with stigma. So these ideas of like prejudice and discrimination and mistreatment, etc. So it's all captured within stigma. And there's been a couple of sort of helpful conceptualizations that break down stigma into exactly those types of processes which are then something we can measure when we research stigma because these sort of very broad ideas of rejection and blame or you know deeply discrediting attributes it's not something that we can easily pinpoint at least in quant work but i do mixed methods so both work (laughs) but the sort of um definition that the research group that i belong to work by um it's a definition that talks of stigma as uh, reflective of problems in three domains. So there's problems of knowledge and attitudes and behavior. So then that means that when we assess stigma, we can have measures that tap into those different domains. And then we can also develop reductions, stigma reduction strategies that tap into those different components. So the knowledge component could be misconceptions or misunderstandings about um, what an illness is or what people with a particular mental health condition are like um, and what treatment for that condition would be, those types of sort of myths and, and misconceptions. Right. And then the attitude element would be those sort of stereotype negative beliefs that we have about people potentially. And often it's that knowledge element that leads to those stereotypes. Yeah. And then the behavior is the sort of critical discriminatory aspect. So it's sort of very important that when we talk about stigma, we don't just talk about these attitudes 
because what's actually most important to people is the behavior that they experience from others or perhaps the behaviors that they end up exhibiting themselves as a result of being stigmatized so it's sort of not enough just to think about you know what do we know about illness or you know whatever like one in four people have a mental health condition or you know oh we shouldn't just think that everyone with depression is lazy or you know those types of knowledge related things or kind of trying to myth buff those uh, misconceptions but it's really important to think about that behavioral element as well so that's sort of how we take that kind of broad fluffy concept fluffy sounds very positive it's not a positive concept <laughs> but you get what i mean kind of like a fussy thing into something a bit more defined so knowledge attitudes and behavior um and that's just one model or kind of concept of many but that's the one that we use in our work yeah i actually like i really like that you've introduced this model to us now so i mean that makes a lot of sense that there's kind of these three levels of stigma this so knowledge attitude and behavior and you can see how they feed into each other um you know someone's not gonna if, if they don't know a lot about something they might be more likely to have a certain attitude or belief about it and that can can inform their behavior exactly it's kind of tough to ask i guess but what are the most like common i guess misconceptions that you think are the most problematic when it comes to mental health like are there specific um specific beliefs or attitudes towards mental health people that are are particularly mm. lead to the worst behaviors i guess is what i'm asking so there's there's research that's not my field but but there is lots of research that kind of looks at what exactly are those beliefs around different diagnoses for instance so mm. so one thing that is quite sort of undisputed is that severe mental health conditions such as schizophrenia or or sort of other things that fall under that sort of psychosis type umbrella or kind of very severe depression, um, bipolar disorder, those types of conditions um, are quite strongly stigmatized. And then we have sort of more common mental health disorders, mild to moderate depression or anxiety conditions that also are stigmatized, but maybe perhaps to a slightly lesser degree. And that could be with the fact that they're just not seen as so severe or maybe the impact of the symptoms aren't equally disruptive to a person so their sort of lifestyle and, and behavior and opportunities aren't disrupted in the same way and, and maybe they're not having the same types of medication and medication side effects are often something that's also kind of a cause of stigma and discrimination maybe they're not in contact with specialist mental health services and that could be another element that adds a sort of layer to the stigma you know like oh you're crazy enough to see a psychiatrist you know like okay then you really have to be crazy you know so, right. so those types of things um, and then I think there's lots of misconceptions sort of linked to each condition, but, but yeah, I haven't seen much work that would sort of try to rank them as such. And I don't think yeah. that would necessarily be the, the job of researchers. I think it's, it's always, you know, whatever matters to a person is, is the most critical thing, but, you know, say around self-harm, for instance, often there's sort of misconceptions around like, oh, this is all just attention seeking and this is not a real condition. You know, this person's just, you know, doing it, especially often it's young girls who, you know, self-harm obviously not exclusively, but, you know, so so that type of age group, it might be just misunderstood as that. Um, yeah. Some people think like, anxiety might just mean like, oh, you're, you're like a little bit shy or, you know, you find this uncomfortable, whereas obviously the reality is, is quite different. Hmm. Or then, you know, we have these things like, oh, you know, bipolar disorder just means that you're really, I don't know, like, oh, the weather's bipolar today. It was sunny in the morning and now it's raining. It's like, you know, it's, it's a lot more than now. Like, oh, you know, especially now with COVID, I'm a bit OCD, you know, like, can you wash your hands when you come in? It's just like, it's super uh, dismissive hmm. and diminishing of a person's actual lived experience of those conditions. 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I, I think it's a really good point. I think um, a lot of the language that we, we use can have a strong impact, right? I think but things like saying I have, I'm, I'm being really like, you know, bipolar or I saying like, oh, I'm depressed and it not really having the actual same meaning as what these mental yeah. health disorders are. Yeah. I mean, a classic one is like, oh, like he's a psycho or something mm. like that. I mean, that's yes. that comes from there, you know, and I, I think yeah. one thing I've noticed, which we don't do so much in the UK where I'm based, but which I do appreciate. I see like a lot of US people do. I don't know if it's happening in, in Canada as well, but I feel like people are making a conscious effort of stepping away from the word crazy, which I really appreciate. Mm. And I, I see lots of people from the States talk about wild instead yes. of crazy which I really yeah. like and I often catch myself saying like oh it was crazy and then I think hold on you know I know where that word comes from you know like I, I don't right. want to perpetuate that language and I think there's going to be these small shifts you know over time so yeah no absolutely and I think you know uh, your example of OCD as well you know people are like oh and ADHD as well I mean that's that's a very common word, like oh I'm being I'm so I'm so ADHD right now like yeah. I can't pay attention like these are things that we are saying but at least maybe it's a stepping stone to realizing that the language that we're using it and actually knowing more about it uh, will come down, yeah. down the line. Right. I mean, at least that's my hope. Yeah. Um, but it's, 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 it's important to note, you know, the language you use does really impact the way we think and the way we, it really know, does. Practice. And it's so insidious because obviously there's like big examples, you know, like where I'd like to think that most people would see a red flag if you see a, some sort of, you know, maybe media headline, you know, like psycho killer, axe murderer, <laughs> you know, something about a, maybe perhaps a, a patient from a mental health facility who yeah. was discharged too early or someone who wasn't provided care because they hadn't reached a crisis point and then, you know, they had a psychotic episode and something like this happened and then you get this sort of really hyperbolic kind of fear-mongering extreme headlines. You know, I'd like to think most of us can kind of catch that and, and see that there's something amiss here, but then kind of that filters down to the kind of everyday language you use as well that can serve to perpetuate these myths and misconceptions. So... Absolutely. Absolutely. At, when it comes to, um, you know, just ha like stigma in general, what do you like, I, I can think of a lot of things that can be classified as stigma. And you talked about, you know, these more like subtle, you know, l lower and like, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, things like that, where people can be very dismissive. Um, stigma can be I, I think the way that I see it, at least, and you might be able to correct me on this is there's this kind of like idea that it's not that big of a deal or it's, you know, you're not, it's, it's whatever. Like, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Oh, you have OCD. Like you just like things clean. Um, or, you know, you're depressed. I get sad too. I can understand what that means. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that's a very common thing for people to say, Oh, I, I, I get what you're going through. Cause I was depressed for a, yeah. for a month one time. Right. Are those just, is that just a part of the knowledge portion of stigma where you just don't really understand it or is it just that you know you think that maybe it's an attitude thing that you just some people just don't genuinely believe in it because there's certain cultures yeah. it's less common for them to accept that there is an issue that actually needs to be addressed yeah I mean it definitely would be an element of that knowledge thing but the sort of knowledge and attitudes go very much hand in hand so sort of like how we perceive something leads to maybe how we think about it or how we yeah. then also go on to react to it. So that's why kind of like knowledge, attitudes and behavior, it's it's a little bit difficult to, to disentangle. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes there's sort of like quite subtle things like we were talking about, these sort of like dismissive turns of phrases, et cetera. That would be something that we could call microaggressions, which has yeah. been um, looked at more in terms of sort of racial microaggressions. Mm -hmm. um, but we did some work, um, it was led by a colleague of mine, where we looked at 
these sort of microaggressions in relation to mental health as well and, and sort of how prevalent these little dismissive type remarks are. So it's, it's definitely an issue in relation to, to mental health stigma as well. But what is much more important to look at is to sort of think about the, the kind of much bigger impacts of stigma. So mm -hmm. we know that people, because of stigma and sort of through the stigma and discrimination of mental illness, people with mental health problems um, have sort of experienced a lot of social exclusion. So they might be excluded from friendships or romantic relationships, um, from education, from employment. There's sort of, you know, hard data talking about the, the rates of prevalence of, you know, employment, for instance, or education opportunities being taken onto courses, et cetera, um, if, you, if you're known to have a mental health problem. So that's a sort of real form of, of stigma and discrimination. And that also extends to, to people's own self-limiting behaviors. If you're anticipating that that's the outcome, you know, if you were to apply for this job, but they would know that, I don't know, once every two weeks you have an appointment at daytime to go and see your psychiatrist, maybe they're not going to hire you. Or if you need to tell your employer that actually, like, I'm on this particular medication, which means I'm quite drowsy in the morning, so I need to structure my working day around that. Is that a problem? And then they realize you have a mental health condition, and then their prejudice kicks in, and perhaps they're less likely to hire you. Um, and we also know that these sort of elements of stigma and discrimination that come with a mental health condition um, are often rated as more impactful or more impairing than the actual impact of the illness itself for the people who, who have that condition. So it sort of means that people are dealing with this sort of double burden of both being unwell and having to cope with stigma and discrimination as a result of that. And, and sort of the list of these negative impacts of stigma just go on and on. So, uh, you know, it leads to worsened psychological distress and the sort of unwellness um, kind of perpetuates and is compounded by this sort of added burden. Um, we know that people with mental health conditions are at higher risk of being victims of crime or coming into contact with criminal justice system because of their illness. These sort of self-limiting behaviors that I mentioned where people are holding themselves back because they've come to anticipate negative outcomes, whether that's due to what they see in society and based on that they expect it for themselves or because of they've actually have had those experiences personally and they kind of come to shape their behavior as a result of that. Um, and we know that stigma acts as a barrier to care, both to, to mental health services and to physical health services. And this has even been linked to premature mortality that we see amongst people who have a diagnosis of a mental health condition. So there's data from around the world that shows that if you have any mental health disorder, on average, you might die 10 years earlier than what you would if you did not, if you sort of have a control of a similar person or population, except for the fact that they don't have a mental health condition. And if you restrict that to severe mental health disorders, so sort of psychosis, major depression, bipolar disorder, that gap can be 20 years or even up to 30 years if we're talking about low middle income countries. So this is a, a huge, you know, like life limiting factor. Um, obviously, that gap is not solely down to stigma, but stigma is contributing to that. So, so sort of, it's not just about saying the wrong thing and kind of like insulting someone, but it's sort of these like absolutely real life consequences that have a devastating impact on people. Yeah, I think that, you know, when people think of stigma per se, sometimes they might just think like, okay, discrimination, like on the street, someone's calling you out for something. That's, you know, it's a lot of it's hidden in the mm -hmm. way that you're talking about it. It's, you know, being 
left out of, of job opportunities or social interactions or friends avoiding like things, things like that, that aren't necessarily upfront and, and uh, super apparent, but you might mm-hmm. realize after a while that these are continually being barriers that are placed in front of you because of your mental health condition. Exactly. And it's sort of what, when we talk about stigma, we, we, there's many ways that you can kind of piece and talk about it, but sort of this sort of idea of, you know, seeing someone on the street, saying something, someone calling your name, whatever, that would be interpersonal stigma. So something that happens within that sort of direct contact with a person. Mm -hmm. Whereas we also have structural discrimination that comes through this sort of structural level policies and institutional practices and legislation that has a limiting impact on people. So Mm -hmm. for instance, in, in some countries, there's legislation that states that if you have a, a mental health condition, you might not be able to run for office, for instance, or, you know, I have seen, you know, attractions or kind of like trips or kind of like travel that you book into where, you know, you essentially should disclose, like if you have a mental health condition, you're not allowed to buy a ticket or have admission. Um, and no. there's there's been places where, you know, you're not able to vote, for instance, or, you know, like all, all these sort of like real built-in structural barriers that are, hugely limiting but also they're sort of interwoven in such a complex system that they're quite challenging to find or sort of pinpoint Mm -hmm. or measure or define but you know they're there and and there's sort of this continuous interaction between how kind of like individual day-to-day lives and kind of like individual attitudes sort of like shape those decisions that are being made or kind of like the general um, mood or kind of like general perceptions within a society shape what's being prioritized to say for instance often we see that mental health care is hugely underfunded because mental health as a whole is just not really considered to be of importance and if we look at the sort of global burden of disease from from mental health conditions versus something like HIV and then we look at or, or cancer maybe and then we look at the proportion of your health budget that goes towards cancer treatment or cancer research versus mental health treatment it's it's sort of hugely disproportionate and that's just another symptom really of of how mental health just isn't valued in the same way and that's a sort of form of that structural discrimination where that perceived importance just isn't there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and we're going to talk about this soon so i think this is a good bridge to this uh petra is let's talk about your work then within low income and middle income countries and how specifically you know what the approaches are to reducing stigma because you know now that we've talked about why it happens or what the like what's going on with stigma and what the kind of forms it kind of takes is it just knowledge that you can kind of that we're that's the kind of like band-aid that we're creating here is like give more knowledge or educational uh information to the masses and then hopefully that'll change their attitudes or behaviors or is there more to it that can be done yeah so one thing we 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 sort of definitely know is that we can reduce stigma and discrimination, which is excellent. So there are evidence-based strategies for how that can be done, which is really good. So there was some work done by Patrick Corrigan, who's based at the Illinois Institute of Technology, I think in the States nowadays, in the early 2000s, where he uh, sort of categorized stigma reduction strategies into strategies that were based on protests, sort of kind of protesting out on the street, kind of saying like, this is an injustice, we want this to end and then education-based strategies. So thinking about what you were saying, kind of trying to challenge those misconceptions, providing accurate information, will that reduce stigma? And contact-based strategies, where we sort of uh, reduce stigma through interactions between people who are stigmatized and also not stigmatized. 
So those were the sort of three categories that he looked at for stigma reduction. And what we find is that the, the sort of protest strategy is not particularly effective for mental health stigma reduction. But what does work is the contact-based strategy. So that's sort of where we're putting all our money. So sometimes it's also contact combined with the provision of education. But the kind of key ingredient is to facilitate intergroup contact or social contact between people who belong to that stigmatized group and the non-stigmatized group. And there's been a lot of research to unpick this further. So we know that it's not just enough to kind of like have any type of contact. Um, so it's not just enough to kind of put people in one room and expect some sort of magic to happen. Um, but we want kind of that contact to have equal status. So somehow like that both kind of in-group and out-group would somehow be of an equal status, sort of the power imbalance would be addressed. Um, there should be a, some sort of opportunity to get to know each other, uh, a sense of, sort of disconfirming those negative stereotypes. Um, so that, that kind of is that knowledge element. Um, specifically, we think it's important to have a focus on recovery narratives. So clearly a sort of key conception is that mental illness is this sort of eternal thing. You'll never get better. You can never lead a full, happy life. You know, you're just sick forever. So that recovery element is really important to emphasize. And also, if you can somehow pursue mutual goals within that interaction, that's a really helpful thing. So, so sort of there's been strategies in England as a part of an anti-stigma campaign here called Time to Change, where, for instance, they organized football matches between uh, people who were from a sort of people who had contact with mental health services and people who didn't. And then you kind of put them into mixed teams and everyone kind of like had that mutual goal. We're playing football together. We're just equals on the playing field. And, and that had a, had a big impact. So that's that's really nice. So sort of we know that that contact is the the key ingredient. And there's lots of evidence that talks about that it sort of works in the immediate term and short term, medium term. We know less about long term effectiveness of these strategies. So that's more because of the lack of research that would have a sort of suitable long term follow up. Um, and we know that the effect is not condition specific. So you can have contact between people, you know, with one type of condition and then, you know, stigma might be reduced for another type of diagnosis as well, which is really good. And also what is really exciting is that you can have indirect social contact. So it doesn't even need to be in person, but you can have video based contact or you can even have imagined social contact. And even that serves to reduce stigma, which is really exciting. Imagine. Really? Yeah. So and, and that's something that's super exciting. So you can even have, you know, it's exciting for a whole host of reasons. But for instance, just in terms of feasibility, you know, like we might find one. Whoa, the cat is going crazy. <laughs> one person who's, you know, willing to talk about their mental health condition and talks about their story really eloquently has this great recovery narrative. And we can film that story yeah. and then we can use that as a resource over and over again, which is going to be so much easier than finding you know other people who could equally talk about their story or maybe people who just be available and willing to kind of like do some like long-term work in this area so that's one reason mm. um and in terms of you know costs that's a really big thing um in the age of covid it's particularly helpful because we can reduce stigma without you know having people in the same room um, and often there's issues that people have around disclosing their mental health condition. And obviously, in order to share your recovery narrative, you have to be able to say like, hey, this was my experience. I was ill. Now I'm better. And, and there's been really interesting work done by some of our colleagues in India where they, for instance, use puppetry and, and sort of theater-based storytelling as a way of kind of providing that social contact. So 
So yeah, like all, all of these things are super exciting. And I'm actually um, supervising a master's student at the moment who's looking at sort of a systematic review of these different sort of what are the non-in-person social contact strategies? Like what types of things are out there, you know, just kind of trying to consolidate this new emerging field of study, which is really exciting. So yeah. So, yeah, so this yeah. is the principle that we're now taking to lower middle income countries. <laughs> That's awesome. So, I mean, especially for media, I think like, as you're talking about, you know, just engaging with media and maybe just having people that you can identify as, you know, that you're watching on TV or on YouTube or whatever, that you can learn more about that might have mental health disorders exactly. may actually be impacting your knowledge and, and attitudes later on. Right. I think of something that's recent. I don't know if it's available. You can, I'm sure it is, but there's <laughs> a, a new special uh, by a comedian named Bo Burnham. That's been getting a lot of press. Ah, okay. Uh, and he, he's a comedian that basically did a, I watched it last night. So it's, it's, in my mind. <laughs> it's fresh but, in your uh, mind, <laughs> but he, uh, but he did a, a whole, comedy special on his own during covid for, and it took him a full year to do it but he recorded it all on his own and a lot of it was about you know how he was struggling throughout the year mm. and and i think that 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 a lot of people have connected with that uh, and really like the yeah. series like like the the episode or the the comedy whatever they call it the comedy special um because of that you know realness and they kind of connected with someone struggling and a lot of people have felt that right exactly. so I think that's that 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 gives us a lot of opportunities as you know trying to reduce the stigma as a whole and at a in a quicker more global sense to Absolutely. do that opposed to like matching people with a person in person right exactly and I think in general like this COVID period has brought about so much more discussion in general about mental health about mental well being about you know how prevalent these problems are I think it's going to be I'm I'm really you know. I shouldn't be saying I'm looking forward to anything as a result of this terrible global pandemic, mm. but sort of I, I do think there's going to be so much really interesting work coming out because I, I think sort of the idea of, of well-being and mental well-being and mental health and looking after your mental health and self-care has become so much more prevalent because I think previously there was a lot of sort of like othering around, you know, somehow yeah. like if you experience mental distress or if you need to like look after your mental health, that means something bad about you or maybe you're weak or, you know, like... I don't need that, you know, like, and now I think it's become a lot more of a universal issue. So, mm-hmm. so it will be really interesting to see kind of how this kind of global discussion is, is changing stigma, because that's the sort of aim of many anti-stigma campaigns is sort of changing the general climate of discussion, you know, like bringing mental health to the mainstream, making it a normal topic of conversation, stopping this idea that mental health conditions are somehow some very marginal experience that hardly anyone has that some means something very specific about you as a person you know as opposed to you know everyone has physical health and everyone has mental health and our mental health can fluctuate and sometimes you know we're doing better than other times and and i think this sort of covid climate has has really brought those discussions to the forefront so it will be really really good to see what happens a big confounder yeah, I... for much stigma research, though, I have to say. But, but you know, it's, yeah. it's like a happy one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is a unique situation that uh, it's funny that you say I completely agree. It's like, you know, we, we are kind of optimistic about this, you know, going forward, because now everybody had such a shitty time <laughs> in the last year and a half that, you know, a lot of our mental health was really impacted and, and yeah. affected by this. And if you didn't have a really hard time, I guarantee that someone in your close network or bubble was having a hard time and may be, be talking to some people about it or yourself about it. Yeah. Right? So it's like by having that contact, it's, it's kind of like an old episode that we had with uh, Tessa Charlesworth from the university of Har- our Harvard university. She talked about implicit biases uh, and, and how 
being interact or interacting with people that are against your biases can actually change your opinions and thoughts on things. So like, for example, you know, um, if you're homophobic, if you have a gay brother or sister that comes out, that can change your perspective of, uh, you know, how you, how you're biased towards people. Same thing can happen with mental health. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about with contact as being that interesting point. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, social contact can be like this, the scales we use to measure that type of thing is like, you know, do you, know of anyone with a mental health condition do you work with anyone with a mental health condition do you have someone with a mental health condition in your family in your friendship group you know those types of questions and sometimes we use those types of questions to evaluate the impact of anti-stigma campaigns as a sort of way of checking like has the general discussion changed have we made people feel more comfortable to talk about these things has awareness about you know the health of your i don't know people close to you around you whatever has that changed as a result of us doing these activities to hopefully reduce the threshold of talking about these things. So, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good indicator. Unfortunately, we don't have like a clear pre measure from previous to the pandemic, but you know, we'll take this as a natural experiment and do the, the best we can with it. Yeah, that's it. Right. And that's, it's funny because, you know, you mentioned that and I'll talk very briefly about this, but it's like a lot of researchers right now are just kind of like, okay, well, I was doing so much work before COVID on this topic. Now we have a completely different population across the world that are just, they're just uniquely different now because of this, this pandemic. And like, what do we do with that? I don't really know. Yeah. We have to like do post pre and post pandemic uh, research uh, yeah, missions, I guess. I'm just, I'm just thinking about the, the, I don't know, the generation of PhDs that will come out of like every data set that has been generated over these past months yes oh yeah absolutely there's just so much to go on over because everybody kind of switched to covid research exactly. and, and you know, so so talking about that very briefly we'll talk we'll talk about you know the work that you've done uh with covid and, and stigmatization with covid if you want to just talk briefly about that because that is kind of an interesting point as well as you know yeah. there is a lot of stigma associated with you know contracting covid uh but then you also have mental health on top of that within covid and like you yeah. know, talking about that whole whole kind of the last year and a half and continuing today so. exactly so, yeah. So, so, so yeah. what was your work on that and, and what did you find? So, yeah, so what we did, so sort of myself and my colleagues, given in your intro, you sort of gave the long name of our institution, which is very mental health focused. So we normally work on mental health and sort of stigma in relation to mental health specifically. But when the pandemic started, um, it was immediately obvious that obviously loads of concerns around stigma were prevalent in relation to COVID as well. So as you mentioned, sort of these fears of contraction, which then meant people were worried about and scared of people who they perceive to maybe have COVID and and sort of that led to a lot of discrimination and distancing and all these things we see in relation to stigma Um, and not just people who were known to have COVID but people maybe who were suspected to have COVID um, or assumed to have COVID and Mm. one kind of type of stigma that we know is stigma by association so you don't have to be kind of carrying that distinguishing mark yourself so you don't have to have COVID yourself to be stigmatized, but you might just be associated with someone who has that, whatever it is that we're stigmatizing COVID in this case. So Mm -hmm. family members of people with COVID could, you know, face stigma. And one population in particular who was affected here was healthcare providers who were facing a lot of stigma because of coming into contact with people, patients with COVID. And another sort of wave of discrimination we've seen in relation to COVID has come to people associated with COVID due to their ethnic origin or sort of perceived country of origin. Exactly. So we've seen so much discrimination and, you know, you see these huge depression figures of, you know, like X hundred percent increase in discrimination towards, you know, 
people of Southeast Asian origins as a result of this pandemic. So, so clearly there was a lot of stigma and discrimination yeah. and you know, immediately from the outset, there was lots of documentation from, you know, organizations like UNICEF and WHO talking about stigma, but it was sort of flagging up the concern as opposed to providing tangible steps to act on it. And that's something that we do a lot of work on is sort of originally we, with the mental health work, it's more about kind of scoping the, the situation and, and getting a sense of kind of how prevalent is this problem, but then quickly we move to intervention work and thinking what do we actually do about this it's not just enough that we kind of keep on reiterating that there's a problem we want to actually act on it so how do we reduce stigma and discrimination so that's what we wanted to do in relation to covid as well so we yeah. quickly pulled together a group of experts on stigma and sort of guideline methodology development um, people from the mental health field people from the field of other infectious diseases like tb and, and sort of brought together this expert group to use um, rapid review approaches to find evidence on stigma reduction that was relevant to COVID and make recommendations based on that. So we did this review in two months, which was two very intense months, but <laughs> but we got there. So we And you're sourcing the review, sorry, Petra, the review sourcing like published research, right? Like exactly. that's where it's coming from, right? Yeah, so what we wanted was evidence and sort of one way to sort of make it quicker is like we were not looking for primary evidence, but we were looking for systematic reviews, ideally, that would already have consolidated those primary studies. Okay. So ideally, in relation to stigma reduction, in relation to COVID specifically, and we did not expect to find a lot of that given COVID had just started. So then we looked yeah. at other comparable viral outbreaks and epidemics of other highly stigmatized conditions. So we looked at evidence from the SARS epidemic, the MERS epidemic, pandemic influenza, Ebola, TB, leprosy, HIV AIDS, and also mental health, because these are all conditions for which there is a lot of evidence and stigma reduction. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of considered ideally systematic reviews. If there's no systematic reviews to consider, then we take primary studies, so sort of database studies, but that haven't been pulled together. And then if that's not available for each condition, then we'd look for other evidence that talks about, you know, stigma reduction or how we might go about that. Right. So, so, so what did you find? So, so we found that there was not a lot of work on COVID, which is what we expected. Um, <laughs> but there was a lot of work on the other conditions and the systematic review evidence was mainly for HIV and mental health. And then the sort of other studies were for the other conditions. Mm. And then we used the sort of standard WHO guideline recommendation process to consolidate what we found about recommended practices for stigma reduction into five key recommendations that we made in relation to COVID specifically. Okay, so, so, uh, so what are those five recommendations? Yeah, and these, are, like, these, are, these are to reduce stigma, correct? Exactly, stigma and discrimination. Yeah. So this is the, okay. the drum roll moment. So yeah, sort of, it's exciting. <laughs> we boiled it down to sort of one set of recommendations that focus on language and words. And this is really similar to what we've spoken about previously about kind of like how the language and the words we use um, in everyday life, how that impacts on stigma. So for instance, that we shouldn't talk about locations in relation to COVID or ethnicity in relation to COVID. Um, you know, I don't think I need to name any names when we talk about not using words like China virus or similar language to talk about COVID. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of not talk about, use sort of exaggerated panic-inducing language like talking about a plague or an apocalypse or anything that sort of really incites fear and not mm -hmm. use language that would imply intentional transmission or blame. So this is interesting sort of 
thinking about the sort of recent developments of not talking about the strands of COVID either in terms of a geographic location, but how yeah, there's like sort UK of these new... and things like exactly. That. So, yeah, and yeah. what's really funny is that you talk about the UK variant and in UK, yeah. it's sort of like, we don't want to be blamed for it. So we talk about the Kent variant. So okay. we've kind of transmitted blame within our little bubble into like one specific region. It's like, it's not all of us, it's those guys over there. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. The, the point that like so but that we should never even be just geographically doing it. We're yeah. always trying to find that out group, just push it exactly. off. Yeah, right. yeah. So yeah, so those recommendations around language and words. Right. And Makes another sense. one about the role of media and journalists and sort of how they use language and words and really thinking about what is responsible kind of way of of just just sharing information and and kind of recognizing the role of media both as a potential source of stigma but also a solution to to sort of trying to reduce stigma and sort of given how media has such a big part in shaping public perceptions it's really important that those platforms are used responsibly to exactly like we've been saying sort of challenging inaccurate beliefs using appropriate language reducing prejudice etc yeah and we made recommendations about public anti-stigma um, sort of okay. interventions and stigma reduction interventions just aimed at the general population, um, such as, again, campaigns to correct myths and rumors and stereotypes and challenge biases. Um, and then there should be targeted anti-stigma programs sort of for people who are particularly affected by stigma. So these groups that we spoke about earlier, maybe people who have experienced COVID themselves, their family members, healthcare providers, um, et cetera, so sort of these groups who've kind of been particularly affected. Mm. And then the final recommendation that we made was that it's really important to include your local communities and stakeholders in shaping those campaigns. So it's super important to contextualize the messages of any anti-stigma work you do to be meaningful within your local community. Um, so sort of the message that works in one setting might not work in another one because the sort of the types of misconceptions or the types of fears might be quite different between different settings. So you need to have sort of local stakeholders and trusted people and someone who's sort of well-known in their community and, and sort of trusted and, and sort of understands the context really well, who's a part of shaping that. Mm -hmm. And particularly what's important and what we wanted to emphasize is also including the voice of people who have experienced COVID or have experienced the stigma themselves as that's something we know is is super important in the, the mental health related work we do. So we wanted to make sure that that type of thinking comes through also to, to any COVID related anti-stigma activities. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. So let's do a recap for those five different types of to reduce a recommendation for reducing stigma. Uh, I got three of them written down, <laughs> but I, I missed two. So I want to have a, a, a recap of all let's, those let's things. Let's so what are the again. five? Yeah. So the first one is the sort of language and words aspect yep. in general. Yep. Then there's the role of media and journalists. Then there's the need for those public anti-stigma campaigns and the targeted anti-stigma programs. And finally, the involvement of local communities and key stakeholders. Absolutely. So sort of those are the domains in which the recommendations are. And there's mm -hmm. a, an open access paper available through my Twitter that details these in much more detail. And it's been Sort of there's been a, a blog by our institution king's college london that sort of has consolidated that a little bit further and it's picked up a bit of media interest as well so it's all all on my twitter if anyone is interested to read more <laughs> absolutely and i will also link that on the show notes as well so i'm glad we could talk about COVID because i know it's, you know it's so relevant for people and and that's awesome if you had to give 
I really, you know, I, I hate to do it, but I mean, you reduce it down to like a couple points. Like, what are things that an individual can do that is particularly wanting to, you know, be active in the way that they reduce their stigma and make sure they're not perpetuating stigma? What are some things that they can do regardless of where they are? Oh, so I think it's always important to to check your assumptions. You know, um, a lot of the stigma that that we sort of perpetuate comes really inadvertently. You know, it comes from the the kind of our surroundings, from the the media we consume, from what we read in the papers, what we hear around us, and often those things are taken as facts. So it's always sort of important to be critical about what you hear, I guess, and sort of like double check any assumptions that you have. Um, but ultimately, to be sort of active in the in the anti-stigma field, I think it would be about thinking about how you can achieve that sense of contact. You know, think about what are the outgroups in your community, or if we talk about mental health particularly, you know, like how can you find ways of getting into contact with people? I guess that kind of applies to, to most things in life. Like how can you just expose yourself to to different different people different opinions different life stories truly try to understand another person you know not just taking taking something for granted or kind of what you hear as as the truth but sort of like going to the source and in this case you know speaking with people who have different experiences from you uh, and learning from them and, and sort of that creates empathy it creates understanding um, we know it could sort of serve to reduce some anxiety and, and sort of in that way reduce stigma as well so see i guess it's about sort of just being a uh, an open person and sort of willing to to listen to others and 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 kind of correct yourself in in what you do is is asking someone if you know someone within your network or with your family friends that has a mental health disorder disorder that you are not very familiar with or don't know much about would you recommend asking them about it or asking about their experiences or or what's what's the best approach yeah i mean there's sort of a really nice um kind of campaign within the the English anti-stigma campaign that's just ended that's called time to talk and there was actually a sort of time to talk day um that at one time I think it was even adopted for like the world mental health day so that was sort of globally a time to talk day so it's just about kind of talk to the person like let's say you have a, a co-worker who has a mental health mm -hmm. condition or who might have been off work for a while for for reasons that you have heard might have to do with mental health or something when they come back you know don't avoid the person like don't avoid conversation you know like they're not you know they're the same person you knew before you know just have a conversation say like hey how are you doing like you know i heard you've been unwell you know like how are you coping just sort of like don't make something a taboo subject that you can't talk about so right. i'd imagine you know exactly the same would apply to your you know your friends your family members like maybe you notice that someone's a little bit off you know like something might be wrong and then you, you someone like if you make it even more awkward for sure it's going to be awkward you know like and and then if you kind of shy away from a topic and never mention that someone has changed or you know hasn't been as active socially as before or kind of like has been a bit more withdrawn or something and you never talk about it you never mention it you know how how would that encourage that other person to to talk about it as well so there's a lot of lot of resources online on like how to instigate those conversations how to how to bring up complex topics, how to be there for someone else. You know, sometimes all it takes is just like, you know, like, hey, I'm here if you ever want to talk. Like, I've noticed you seem a little bit off. Um, is there something on your mind? You know, like, I'd, I'd love to talk to you, you know, if, if you feel ready. So yeah. just having those conversations. Yeah. Opening up that connection sounds like, you know, the best way to do it. And I think 
it, it's it's kind of it's kind of insulting, but they have a Bell Let's Talk Day, and it's it's one day every year that they like. Oh yeah, let's talk about mental health, and it's you know it's kind of a shill like about the company, but but it it does have value in the sense that some people are more comfortable saying, yeah, I have been dealing with X, Y, or Z. You know, I've I've had anxiety, yeah. I've had depression, I've had bipolar disorder, whatever, um, and it opens those connections up for people to ask questions. Yeah. And at, at least they're not shying away, and I think that an important note, you know, the, and and a really cool point that you you brought up in this episode today is that a lot of the stigma is hidden, right? It's it's shying away from those conversations. It's you know it's not talking to that coworker that just came back from leave, right? Mm. Those kind of things are actually having huge impacts on those people and setting yeah. up barriers that you're not aware you're setting up. Exactly. Like, what's that communicating to them? You know, like I don't want to hear about your thing. You know, like never talked about it. You know, let's just create this elephant in the room and like. Yeah. never never go into this why were you off two weeks let's pretend it never happened you know like that's <laughs> yeah. it doesn't help anybody right Definitely and, not. <laughs> and, and i think that's you know there's been so much that we can take away from today and i think i really do appreciate you coming on uh, petra this has been really enjoyable and really informative for a lot of people there's you know you can take away a lot of things especially about mental health because you know that's what a lot of people are really interested in i think it's becoming a more i'm glad i'm very glad that it's becoming a more common topic with a lot of people maybe it's just my little bubble <laughs> I do talk to a lot of psychologists and <laughs> psychiatrists, so maybe it is my bubble, but I do think that a lot of people are more aware of it, at least, especially after COVID and during COVID, you know, acknowledging that hard times are inevitable for people and that sometimes mental health uh, issues need to be addressed and it's yeah. okay to talk about them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you kind of want to feel like that I did not guide you correctly and get to and you want to talk about or anything that you want to kind of, you know, finish off with to tell our talk to our listeners about, you know, mental health and the importance of the work that you do? Well, I, I think sort of we touched on many of the things that I think are really important, but I think sort of what we ended up with, which I hadn't maybe thought to bring up myself, but what is really important is just that sort of talk to to others about mental health, open up those conversations, make it a regular topic or conversation, you know, like not the only thing but just something that can be mentioned alongside anything else um mm. and and yeah that that goes a really long way to reducing stigma and, yeah. and maybe i can just plug that if anyone is interested to, to sort of learn more about the work that we do in relation to stigma we have a website so the kind of broader group um for all the stigma work that we do over at kings is is called indigo so it's indigo-group.org and there's a lot of links there to, to sort of stigma work that we do in terms of published papers. We also have a range of measures for assessing stigma in relation to that sort of knowledge, attitude, behavior way of thinking about stigma that I spoke of previously. Um, we have a separate section for this sort of low middle income country based work that we're doing as well. That's sort of up and coming. So so if anyone wants to, to learn more about the work, they can go and, and check out the website. And my Twitter handle is at Ron Home Petra. So awesome. that is another good way of, of checking it whenever <laughs> I remember to update it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and we'll link all those things in our show notes as well. It's a, I'm glad that you're wanting to connect with everybody. I'm sure people, if they are interested, they will definitely connect to you on Twitter. Um, and, and thanks again, Petra. This is really, really enjoyable. I think one thing that I mean, you finished on, I, I think it's a, such an important point that I think is something that happens a lot. People do open up and start to talk. If you do start talking about mental health issues with somebody, don't make it the only thing you talk to them about, right? Exactly. Like that's, you know, it's, it's a part of them. It's just like their health. Like if someone has a broken leg, you don't just continue to talk about their broken exactly. leg every time you talk to them, right? And um, I think people are so much more than their mental health condition, you know? So it's just one facet of them and there's no need to 
you know, make it all about that one aspect of mm -hmm. the experience. But at the same time, it's probably a really important part of the experience that shouldn't be ignored. So yeah, create that space, but it doesn't have to be the entire conversation, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, this is awesome. So thank you so much, Petra. This was a really informative episode. Really fun to have you on. And I'm really glad to, to learn more about mental health stigma and how to reduce it. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me. If you made it all the way to the end, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. Next week, we have Dr. Kareva Matuku on talk about eyewitness testimonies and alibis you have to check it out it's gonna be such an awesome episode otherwise have a wonderful day thanks for sticking around enjoy the rest of whatever you're doing today and do it with passion thanks <laughs>